141. Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. <coughs> Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. From the fight return victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. Crown him, crown him, crowns be. Scripture in your prayer, we'll sing your handout complete in thee. Romans chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 through 9. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit? is there of circumcision, much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. What if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, and but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou be jud art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man, God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I judged as a sinner? And not rather as we have slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come whose damnation is just, what then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. 
For we have proved, we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, most gracious, glorious Lord, plenteous in mercy, tender and piteous toward your children, knowing what they are and remembering that they're dust. Yet your testimony is that you have loved them with an everlasting love, and because you've loved them thusly, you've drawn them to yourself. You've chosen them in Jesus Christ before the world began, predestinated them to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ into yourself, and whom you predestinated, you called, and whom you called, you glorified, and whom you glorified, you justified. We thank you, Father, that in the matter of the salvation of our souls, that you'd not allow us to take part in it, that you fixed it full and free in the eternal counsels and purposes of God, and executed it in time on the cross of Calvary. We thank you, Father, for salvation. We thank you for the truth of the gospel, that it sets things in order and clears things up. Pray for those who are sick, for those who have been added. Ms. Brown's been added to the prayer list. Pray for her. Pray for Teresa's sister. The others who requested prayer, Lord, we ask your help for them. Pray for ourselves this hour that you might be pleased to give us true worship. Fix our hearts and minds and eyes upon Jesus Christ. You're worthy of all praise and honor. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Complete in thee. <coughs> Complete in thee, no work of mine may take, dear Lord, the place of thine. Thy blood hath pardoned, bought for me, and I am now complete in thee. Yea, justified, O oh, blessed Lord, and sanctified. hath conquered, reign within, thy voice shall bid the tempter flee, and I shall stand complete in thee. Yea, justified, O blessed thought, and sanctified salvation Oh, 
Savior win before thy bar. All tribes and tongues assembled are among thy chosen. Will I be at thy right hand, complete in thee? Yea, justified, O oh, blessed thought, and sanctified salvation wrought. Thy blood had pardon, fought for me, and glorified I too shall be. Stephen stands, receive the offering, please. pray. Father, again, we come in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the unspeakable gift that you've given to your children freely and with him freely given them all things. We thank you, Father, that you take such good care of us, that you watch over us, care for our every need, and give us what we need and more in abundance. Let us return unto thee now that which you've given us with joy and thanksgiving in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Invite your attention back to Romans chapter 3. I heard a story about a lawyer one time, and it was about the fact that a lawyer should never ask the question that he doesn't have the answer to, and they never do. They always have the answer before they ask the question. The story was that this fellow was on trial for biting off someone's ear. 
lawyer for the defense thought he had him cornered because the guy had not actually seen him bite off the guy's ear. And so he got him on the witness stand and said to him, we know this guy's ear was bitten off, but did you see this man bite off this man's ear? He said, no, sir. He said, you're saying you did not see him bite off this man's ear. That's right. He said, this was what he shouldn't have asked. He said, well, what did you see? He said, I saw him spit it out. <laughs> That's a, Paul was a lawyer. And he always anticipated the questions that nature and religion would ask in reference to the truth that he set forth. You see that over and over again in the word of God. When he talked about the election of grace and set forth the singular passage that says this is for the purpose of God's election might be glorified. When he talked about Jacob and Esau being in the womb having not done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand, he said to the, that the elder shall serve the younger Jacob, have I loved and Esau have I hated. Now he knows that's a tremendously powerful and absolute doctrine. And he, know, he knew uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit there would be some resistance to that truth. So he addressed the question that men would ask next. They would say, that makes God unrighteousness, unrighteous. So he said, is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Now in this passage of scripture we've read this morning, he addresses several questions that are set forth by carnal mind. The title of this message is Carnal Inquiry. If you spend some time with Paul's epistles, you'll find that when he was de declared a doctrine that was particularly offensive to the flesh, he proceeds to answer objections that will most surely arise when the doctrine is preached. And if you have had opportunity to talk to folks about the truth and set forth the truth, you, you have heard these objections. They have come forward. They have come forward. Man's mutable nature does not deal well with things that are absolutely declared and absolutes are not welcome to the natural mind. Nature prefers options and offers and suggestions and debatable subjects, but when faced with truth, it rails against it in one form or another. Paul has just made it clear that Jews can no more be justified by the law than the Gentile can be justified by nature. All those truths are set forth in chapters 1 and 2. In effect, he said that Jews and Gentiles are actually in the very same boat in the matter of justification, namely, that they are shut up to the will of God and Jesus Christ alone for justification. Happens nowhere else. The righteousness of God, the righteousness required by God is revealed in the God-given faith, or revealed to God-given faith through the declaration of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel concerns one thing. It concerns his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you turn back to chapter 1, this is how Paul introduces the subject that will be addressed in Romans. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Now, if you note, the next verse is parenthetical. It's an explanation of what he just said. 
but it's not necessary to the context in order to understand what is meant. So you read verse 1 with verse 3, you'll understand. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. The gospel concerns his son. When we preach the gospel, we're preaching a person. We're preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Having slain every other righteousness in the first two chapters of this book, But this righteousness places Jews and Gentiles alike in the same jeopardy. The righteousness that's set forth in the gospel puts the Jew and the Gentiles same. So it's obvious to the Jew that Gentiles are without God. They believed that all along. They called them dogs. That they were without hope. They were, they were born, uh, the Jews were born to a Jewish tradition and law and have been notably the only nation on earth that God has chosen for himself. And everybody else was in trouble. And they, that's what they believed. What Paul says is you're just the same trouble. The carnal mind has some questions concerning what Paul has said. The first question Paul knows they will ask is if we've kept the feasts and the sacrifices, if we've been circumcised, if we are Abraham's seed and this does not account for acceptance with God, what has been the use of all that we have done? They say, they ask that question in chapter 3. It says, what advantage had the Jew what advantage had you? We've done all this, and God's chose us as his people. And you say we're lost just like the Gentiles are. What advantage does it have to being a Jew and being chosen as the nation of God? What advantage then hath the Jew? What profit is there of circumcision? He said, much every way. Much every way. Chiefly because for unto them they were committed the oracles of God. Paul's answer is very distinctive here. He declares that the Jew had a great advantage, but the context of the statement is that they had they abused this advantage. The entire chapter is preceded as one has shown that, that they have used the law for transgressing the law. But Paul does not here deal with the feast and the ceremonies, but singularly with something else. He says this, you had the oracles of God. This is the advantage you have. What's he talking about? He's not talking about the ceremonies and the law. He's talking about, he's not talking about the old covenant. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the Bible they have. This is the advantage they had. This is a great advantage if you had the Bible. The advantage that they had over the Gentiles was they had the testimony of Christ in picture and type and shadow for all those books of the Old Testament. Our Lord had confronted the Jews with the fact in his ministry that he was God, that he was the Son of God, and that scriptures testified of him. He told those who studied the scriptures, you do study the scriptures, for in them you think you find eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. And you will not come to me that you might have life. Our Lord had confronted them with that. They had refused to believe that, that he was the Messiah, that he was the stone that the builders refused, that he had been made the head of the corner, the assumption of the Jew then is that since they have not lived up to their contract, the entire matter of the promises of God are nullified. That's what they're, That's the question. Well, what is, what, what is the advantage we have then? It all must be nullified. You're saying it's all nullified. He's saying you had the word of God. As is always in nature, nature thrives on conditional covenants, but the apostle is taking uncontestable, the uncontestable testimony of 
promise. That's what we have, brothers and sisters. We have the promise of God. Our salvation is a promise. We're children of promise. We're heirs according to promise. That promise, all the promises are yea and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an uncontestable promise. Our Lord has magnified his word above his name. We have the word of God. You don't have anything else here. You say, I have faith. I'm glad you do. Show it to me. Say, I have, a, I have life. Show it to me. I have Christian life. Show me. Explain that to me. You can't. What do you have? You have what God said. And God has given you faith to believe it. That's a wondrous thing. Verse 3 makes it clear that their unbelief has nothing to do with the fulfillment of the promise. He says, for what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? He says kind of the same thing in Romans chapter 9. He says this. He says, uh, I could wish myself in verse 3 a curse for, from Christ for my brethren, my kindred according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Who's, who are fathers of whom are concerning the flesh came, who is over all God, blessed forever, amen. Not as though the word of God has taken none effect. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Because Isaac was born of the spirit and not of the power of the flesh. He makes it clear that unbelief has nothing to do with the fulfillment of promise. You think about that. They believe that unbelief did prevent them from receiving the blessing of God. They believe that no promise could be theirs unless they kept the promise or like they kept the word of God and obeyed. And he said, think about this. <laughs> Tell this to someone who wants to go under the law. Unbelief has nothing to do with the promise of God. Faith has nothing to do with the promise of God. The promise of God is set in the stones of eternal counsel and will not change. Under the covenant handed down at Sinai, the blessings were tied to obedience. The testimony of the written word was never conditioned upon obedience. This book's not conditioned upon your obedience. The truth of it, the fact of it's not conditioned upon your obedience. It's the truth, whether you obey it or not. It's the truth. The law is not against the promises. It simply had nothing to do with the promises being kept. The fulfillment of the promises relied entirely on the faithfulness of God and that alone. The unbelief exhibited by the Jew concerning the old covenant did not make the faithfulness of God in effect. God forbid. In verse 4 he says this, But God forbid, yet let God be true, and every man be a liar, as it is written that thou mightest be justified in thy sins, thou mightest overcome when thou judgest. Where did that come from? Uh, Psalm 51. When David, who had sinned against God, sinned against God, said to God in, in, in 51, he said, your promise is going to be kept. You'll be justified when you, when you judge me, regardless, because you'll, you'll keep your promise. God is true. He is true to every promise he's ever made. He will always will be. Man is a liar and a lie. He's lighter than vanity. The first utterance that issues from, the, from man's mouth as soon as he is ushered into this world, is a prevarication. It's a lie. He comes forth from the womb as soon as he is born speaking lies. 
And the vanity of man is that he would even think that the fulfillment of God's word would be somehow dependent upon him. What vanity. What vanity. What, what uh, hubris for someone to think that. But do not preachers stand in the pulpits and tell men that God's power is only released by their faith? <laughs> is not free will the cardinal doctrine of religion? What else could possibly be meant by the terms God's hands are tied or the only hands God has is your hands? What could possibly else be meant to that? Nothing more this, this will not take place unless you make it take place. That's what is meant. These are the lies from liars that believe the fulfillment of God's promises is dependent upon them. Let God be true and all men be liars. The example that Paul uses to prove that God is true to his promises that men have nothing to do with their fulfillment is David's sin with Bathsheba. God promised that the seed of David would be the Messiah. We just read that in Romans 1 concerning his seed is the offspring of David. God promised that seed. David grievously sinned. David grievously sinned against God. But that did not alter the promise one whit. Didn't change the testimony. Didn't change the testimony. David knew this and confessed that though his sin was worthy of punishment and God would be right to do so, that God's word was just and right and would be fulfilled. When men judge that God is unrighteous if he keeps his promise and seemingly overlooks the sins of men, David declares that God is righteous to keep his promise regardless of what men say or do because their sin or obedience was never accounted as instruments in keeping the promise. As David lay in the arms of Bathsheba, committing adultery and soon to have her husband slain, wicked David, was the apple of God's eye and a man after God's own heart because that's what the word says <laughs> see it's how God sees it is how it is this fact presents another problem to the natural mind it addresses the matter of sin and grace sin and grace the question that arises in the natural mind is does not my sin then increase the Glory of God's grace. I mean, if David did all that and God gracious was gracious to him, doesn't that mean that if I sin a lot, God will show more grace? <laughs> That's a logical thinking, isn't it? That's natural thinking. If that were the case, would it not be more advantageous to the glory of uh, God uh, and his grace if I sin more? And if that is the case, how can God take vengeance on me if my sin actually is the source of his honor? That's what he says in verses 5 through 7. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what should we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man, God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? That's a logical thinking. That's the question that would arise. How can God punish sin in one instance and magnify his grace and justice by forgiving it in another instance? How can God judge me as a sinner if my sin actually glorifies his grace? That's the question nature asks. These are all natural questions to which the singular answer is the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
However, religion does not see it that way because they have no clue what happened on Calvary. <laughs> they don't have a clue. Listen to them talk. Religion assesses that the doctrine of particular selected grace opens the floodgates of righteousness. That's what they say. You preach grace. And, I, and, I, and I've had this said to me. Had this said to me. You look at a religious man and say, your works, your righteousness, your life, your will, your, nothing about you has anything to do with your salvation. Only the grace of God has to do with your salvation. And they say, well, that just, that ain't right. <laughs> that can't be right. It can't be right. That would just make men go out and want to sin all they want to. Well, you pretty much sin all you want to now, don't you? Anybody holding a gun to your head? No. But those who have been touched by the grace of God know they're a sinner. And when they see that, when they don't, we don't often do like we ought to. But when we do, we are enamored with the grace of God, overwhelmed by it, amazed by it. And God would have something to do with someone like us. And that's how his grace works. Religion assesses that the doctrine of particular selected grace, electing grace, opens the floodgates of licentiousness. And that's what they say in verse 8. And not rather as we slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Those who preach the truth of the sovereign grace of God and those who believe it are slandered. Religion declares that such folks preach that men ought to sin, that grace may abound. That's a lie, but that's what they believe. Or that men should do evil, that good may come. That's a logical reasoning because men do not understand what grace is. Religious men naturally believe that the message of grace is scandalous and to the natural mind it is makes no sense that the promises of God are kept no matter the violence of the instrument that he uses. <laughs> he uses us, don't he? <laughs> My goodness. That don't affect his promises. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that it doesn't seem scandalous to the natural mind that while David dishonored God with his horrible sin, that he was still the apple of God's eye, man after God's own heart, and the promised progenitor of the Messiah. Seems scandalous. Natural men want to believe that God uses pure and pious and holy men to do his bidding. But just the opposite is naturally true because no such men actually exist in the world. For he goes on to say, the very next verse, verse 10, there's an unrighteous. No, not one. No, not one. Men cannot abide the fact that God has chosen the worst to save and disregarded the society's best, but that's how it works. Those who claim God's dealings to be unjust and declare that the teachings of grace lead to sin are damned, he says, and justly so. The fact is that we are not condemned, and they who are condemned are no different at all, naturally. We're exactly the same. As far as character, honor, rectitude, 
There's no difference in me than the gutter drunk. No difference in the lovely women here than the whore on 42nd Street in New York City. And no difference naturally. If there's a difference, it's God's grace. Who maketh thee to differ? And what hast thou that thou hast not received? See why he boast of not receiving. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, Paul says. If there is any difference in their eternal state, it must be by the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel from faith to faith. Men do not understand substitution, so they are bound to misinterpret grace. All men by nature are sinners, and some men by grace are saints. Some men are left to their own devices, and some men are selected for gracious salvation. Some men will pay for their own sins. Some will have had their paid sin, sins paid for by substitute. In both cases, God will show himself to be perfectly righteous and just. If you believe this, if you preach this, if this is the object of your affection, it will be the object of the world's slander. You can count on it. Because there's a part of us, our old man, has difficulty with this to this day and fights it to this day. Thank God he has saved us by his grace and given us his spirit to believe his truth. But the old man that fights us to the day we die. You don't think that's true? Sometimes you think about when you're walking and see somebody in a restaurant or something, they do something, you think, well, a sorry piece of such. Now, you're the sorry piece of such, aren't we? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, saved a wretch like me. God bless you.